thank you for downloading this podcast from Gaimere Baptist Church. You can find out more about our church at our website, gaimerebaptist.org.au. May God speak to you as you listen. Have you ever asked a question and gotten more information than you wanted in return? You ask an innocent question about family or work or a hobby, like, I don't know, ice hockey possibly, uh, and all of a sudden you're inundated with more names than you can remember, places you've never been to, uh, technical terms that you'll never be able to understand, and it just kind of washes over you and just doesn't seem to stop. And if you love the person that you're talking to, of course, you're going to try to listen, aren't you? You're going to try to pay attention and work out why this is so important to them. Uh, Try to hear what's uh, significant in the midst of it. And to some degree, we're kind of doing that today in the passage that we're looking at. Joshua's chapter 13 to 21. Nine chapters filled with the description of how the land of Canaan was divided amongst the people of Israel. We have passages such as this one in chapter 19, starting in verse 17. The the fourth lot came out for Issachar. According to its clans, their territory included Jezreel, Keseloth, Shunem, Hapharim, Shion, Anaharath, Rabbith, Kishion, Ebez, Remeth, and Gamin, and Hada, and Beth Pazaz. The boundary touched Tabor, Shahuzamah, and Beth Shemesh and ended at the Jordan. There were 16 towns in their villages. These towns and their villages were the inheritance of the tribe of Issachar according to its clans. That's the briefest of them. Some of them go on for much, much longer than that. And as one of the commentators, Trent Butler, that I've been reading as I've been going through the book of Joshua says, long lists may discourage us from digging into the theological understanding that this section seeks to convey. And I read that and said, amen. (laughs) Long lists like this of places that we don't know, of, of names that we don't recognize, do discourage us sometimes from trying to figure out what the heck is in this. But this passage is to some degree the theological heart of the book of Joshua. The very first indicator is just how long it is. In any kind of essay or project or presentation or even a news report, the the most important piece, the most important item, the most important part of the thesis is the one that is the longest. Well, this is the longest section in the book of Joshua, nine chapters describing the allotment of the land. For us, however, we kind of get lost in all the names. And so what I want to try to do this morning is to try to kind of pull apart the names a little bit and try to get at what some of those lessons might be for us. Because this is not bureaucracy gone mad. This is not administrative overkill. This does reflect for us some really critical components of of the book of Joshua, its themes and purpose in our life. There's a couple of indicators for us really early on that this is actually as religiously motivated as the rest of the book of Joshua has been. So let me point out just a couple to you. The first of them is referred to at the end of chapter 19. It's where we're told who was involved in this. These uh, allotments of land, kind of the giving the land to the various tribes, was not done at the council chambers. It wasn't done by a legal firm or a surveying company. This was done instead, as we're told, by Eliezer the high priest, 
Joshua son of Nun, and the heads of the tribal clans of Israel, assigned by lot at Shiloh in the presence of the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. This was done before the Lord, that the tent of meeting was where the Ark of the Covenant was. It was where the very presence of God resided. And before the presence of God, the high priest had cast lots. This was not just a, a, a kind of an administrative detail for Joshua and the tribal leaders to kind of figure out. They weren't the ones trying to assign the property. This was God's decision in their life. We also see, I think, the religious motivation of this text, just in the arrangement of this whole section. We don't have time, obviously, to go through all the bits and pieces of it, but let me draw your attention to two things in particular. The first of which is how this section ends, chapter 20 and chapter 21. Chapter 21 is devoted to handing out towns to the Levites. The Levites were a particular tribe of the people of Israel, but they did not receive an inheritance. In other words, if you were to look at some sort of map of the tribes of Israel, you'd be able to find Judah and Simeon and Manasseh and Issachar and Zebulun and and the rest. You would not find a significant section for Levi. Their inheritance was to serve before the Lord. But in each of the the tribal allotments, there were towns that were given to the Levites, places where they could reside and where they could kind of plant their own crops and where they could be engaged in the work that God had given them, which was to teach the people about the law, to help them to worship the Lord appropriately and faithfully. And so this whole section ends with a reference to the law and faithfulness. Chapter 20 talks about the uh, dedication of several cities of refuge. So if you were an Israelite in, in, in the ancient world and you accidentally, unintentionally killed somebody, uh, to avoid a blood feud, you could go to one of these cities of refuge and there you could reside safely for a period of time until it was all kind of worked out. This is the, the infrastructure of the law to make sure that the people could live out all that they were called to as the people of God. This is how it ends. It ends by talking about things that support the law and things that support the Levites and the faithfulness of the people of God themselves. This is one indicator that there's more going on here than just kind of a list of place names. But there's also this really curious, I guess, uh, story that's told in Joshua 13, sorry, 14, and in chapter 17. This is the the, the first allotments of land to the tribe of Judah and the tribes of Joseph. And outside of those stories, there's a story of Caleb and a story of the men of Ephraim. Now, this story actually goes all the way back to a subplot that was introduced in the book of Genesis. You remember that Abraham received the promise of God, and Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. The promise went through Isaac. Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau, and the promise went through Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. And one of the questions is, is there a particular son on whom the promise will rest in a particularly strong way? All 12 tribes end up being the facilitators of blessing, but is there one son in particular? And at the end of the book of Genesis, there are two favorites, Judah and Joseph. I mean, Jacob loves Joseph, first of all, which is kind of why the whole problem starts in the first place, right? He has two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. 
those two tribes and the tribe of Judah continue to kind of slug it out in, in the rest of the Pentateuch. So in the book of Numbers, Moses sends one spy from each of the tribes into the land of Canaan to spy it out. The 12 spies come back. Ten of them say it's no good, filled with, uh, with fortified cities, strong warriors. We, we can't do it. Two of them say, no, we can. J uh, Caleb from the tribe of Judah and Joshua from the tribe of Ephraim. So we have these two tribes once again kind of coming into the spotlight. Here, the first two allotments are to Judah and to Ephraim. The story that begins it, however, is focused on Caleb. If you have your Bible with you and want to follow along, have a look in chapter 14, beginning in verse 6. Now, the people of Judah approached Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, at Kadesh Barnea about you and me? I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to explore the land, and I brought him back a report according to my convictions. But the others who went up with me made the hearts of the people melt in fear. I, however, followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. So on that day, Moses swore to me, the land on which your feet have walked will be your inheritance and that of your children forever because you have followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. Now then, just as the Lord promised, he has kept me alive for 45 years since the time he said this to Moses while Israel moved about in the wilderness. So here I am today, 85 years old. I'm still as strong today as the day Moses sent me out. I'm just as vigorous to go out to battle now as I was then. Now give me this hill country that the Lord promised me that day. You yourself heard that the Anakites were there and their cities were large and fortified, but the Lord helping me, I will drive them out just as he said. It's a pretty inspirational speech, isn't it? So here's Caleb coming basically in courage and faith saying, God promised me this land. Before you start allocating it, I want the inheritance that God promised me. And yeah, I know there are Anakites there, these fearsome warriors. With God's help, I'll drive them out. Sounds like a great way to start the allotment of land. So there's the allotment to Judah that takes place in chapter 15. In 16, we get to the allotment for Ephraim and Manasseh, the tribes of Joseph, which goes into chapter 17. And in chapter 17, verse 14, we have another story. It kind of bookends this allotment. I want you to listen to it and see if you can pick the contrast. The people of Joseph said to Joshua, why have you given us only one allotment and one portion for our inheritance? We are a numerous people, and the Lord has blessed us abundantly. If you're so numerous, Joshua answered, and if the hill country of Ephraim is too small for you, go up into the forest and clear land for yourselves there in the land of the Perizzites and the Rephaites. The people of Josh Joseph replied, the hill country is not enough for us, and all the Canaanites who live in the plains have chariots fitted with iron both those in Beth Shan and its settlements and those in the valley of Jezreel. But Joshua said to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, you are numerous and very powerful. You will have not only one allotment, but the forested hill country as well. Clear it and its furthest limits will be yours. Though the Canaanites have chariots fitted with iron and though they are strong, you can drive them out. To hear the contrast, Caleb is, is an example of courage and faith. The men of Ephraim, Complaint and fear. Why'd you just give us one law? We, 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 we should get more than that. And then when Joshua says, well, just go clear some more land, they say, yeah, but the Canaanites, they're like, they got 
iron chariots. And Joshua basically says, well, go figure yourselves out. Here's the contrast. And if you know the history of Israel, you'll know that this has been the challenge for them since the beginning, hasn't it? Will they act in courage and in faith to the promises that God has given to them? Or will they complain about it and act in fear? Here the author introduces for us again these spiritual concerns, pointing out that the allotment of land is not just an administrative task. We shouldn't get bored as we read this through. We should be looking for these spiritual rhythms that are a part of it. But all of this leads ultimately to the heart of this entire section, which is actually wrapped around the faithfulness of God and the invitation that that gives to his own people. In chapter 21, at the very conclusion of, of this whole section, we read these words. So the Lord gave Israel all the land he had sworn to give their ancestors, and they took possession of it and settled there. The Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their ancestors. Not one of their enemies withstood them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hands. Not one of all the Lord's good promises to the house of Israel failed. Every one was fulfilled. And we've already seen a few examples of this. Caleb and, and his taking of his inheritance in accordance to the word of the Lord is an example of God's faithfulness. Chapter 13 actually begins by reminding us of the territory on the eastern side of the Jordan uh, that was given over to the tribes of Reuben and Gad and half the tribe of Manasseh because the Lord had given to them the territory of Sihon and Og, king of the Amorites. We find it in the, the curious little tale in chapter 17 of Zelophehad's daughters. It's a story introduced in the book of Numbers where a man named Zelophehad has five daughters and no sons. Uh, and the inheritance is to go to the sons. And the daughters come to Moses before the people of Israel and they say, shouldn't we receive an inheritance? And the Lord, uh, the Lord said to Moses, indeed they should. And so we find in chapter 17, verse 3 and following, that these daughters, Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milcah, and Tirzah, went to Eleazar the priest, Joshua son of Nun, and the leaders, and said, the Lord commanded Moses to give us an inheritance among our relatives. So Joshua gave them an inheritance along with their bro the brothers of their father, according to the Lord's command. The faithfulness of God. We even see it in the detailed descriptions of the territory. I mean, even if you don't know where these places are, the detail suggests that this is, this is a real place. If you knew these places, you could have stood at, at Jezreel and kind of looked one direction and kind of seen where the land was. This is the embodied promise of God lived out in geography, in hills and trees and rivers and streams and all of those sorts of things. This is the faithfulness of God to his promises. But at the same time, there's this really kind of curious other side. If you have a look in chapter 13, the very beginning of this section, the Lord speaks to Joshua and says, you are now very old, and there are still very large areas of land to be taken over. And he actually lists it. This is the land that remains. All the regions of the Philistines and Geshurites, from the Shihor River on the east of Egypt to the territory of Ekron on the north. 
All of it counted as Canaanite, though held by the five Philistine rulers in Gaza, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron. The territory of the Avites on the south, all the land of the Canaanites, from Era of the Sidonians as far as Aphek and the border of the Amorites, the area of Biblos and all Lebanon to the east, from Baalgad below Mount Hermon to Lebohama. Now, even if you don't know where any of those places are, and I'm guessing that you don't, it sounds like a lot of land, doesn't it? We're not talking about small pockets. We're not talking about, oh, there's a park at the end of the road that you haven't yet conquered, uh, or there's that field behind the whatever it is that you don't control. There's big chunks of land. So how is it that God's promises have been fulfilled and there is still land to be taken? And, and, and what do we do with that? Now, here's a curious thing. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, in verse 22, God actually says that this is going to happen. Moses tells the people that the Lord your God will drive out those nations before you little by little. You will not be allowed to eliminate them all at once or the wild animals will multiply around you. In other words, if you wipe everybody out, there's too much land for the amount of people. The place will kind of go to pot. Uh, for lack of a better word, uh, and you'll, you'll just be surrounded by wild animals. It'll just get out of control. So I will only drive the nations out little by little. And that's what we have in Joshua, don't we? The Lord has driven out the nations little. I guess the little is still coming. With little by little. The people control what they need to control, but there are still areas that are not yet conquered. So what we have here, first of all, is that there's no deficiency in God's promises. God is faithful to his promises, but there is a future greater fulfillment, isn't there? Does that sound vaguely familiar? Promises made and promises fulfilled, but a consummation yet to come. There's more to be conquered. The Lord will drive those nations out. Rest assured, he will do it. Every one of his promises will come to pass. But between now and then, what are the people to do? You see, because there's a couple of references here to the nations and the, and the groups that were still left behind. Uh, in chapter 13, verse 13, we're told that the Israelites did not drive out the people of Geshur and Makkah. So they continued to live among the Israelites to this day. In chapter 15, verse 63, we're told that the Jebusites could not be dislodged from Jerusalem. In chapter 16, verse 10, we're told that the Canaanites living in Gezer were also not dislodged. There were these groups of people, pockets of people, nations that still surrounded and lived within the people of Israel, and there's no word in Joshua, no editorial that says that the people sinned by doing this. They were not allowed to eliminate them all at once. But this is where we come to the invitation. You see, God has been faithful. He has fulfilled his promises, and he will make sure that his promises are fulfilled. But between now and then... There is something important for the people of Israel to do. And this is where knowing the whole story comes in handy, doesn't it? Because the whole reason for the conquest was in part a judgment on the people of Canaan. The reason why the people of Canaan were to be driven out, why they were to be killed, was that if they were allowed to remain, the, 
the, the possibility was that the people of Israel would begin to follow their gods and begin to follow their ways and begin to act immorally and begin to act in ways that would bring them under judgment. And remember, the people of Israel were meant to be a display home for the nations of Israel, a living, breathing example of what it looked like to live in relationship with God. And so these reports of these pockets of people are not neutral because they beg the question, will Israel be faithful? Will they be faithful? Because between God driving out the first bits of the nation so they could settle there and God driving out all the nations fully, the people of Israel were left with a choice about how faithfully they would live. And here's the tension. It leads really nicely into the concluding chapters of the book. In the concluding chapters of the book, there are no more conquests. There's no more wars. Instead, there's a whole bunch of focus on faithful living. What does it look like to live faithfully? And the call and the charge for the people to live faithfully. And the reason was there are still people around you who might, if you allow them, tempt you and keep you from being the blessing that God desires you to be. This kind of becomes a a two-part sermon. There's the faithfulness of God and the invitation to be faithful, and then the question that is answered in the concluding chapters is, what does faithfulness look like, and how did the people of Israel go? If you want to ruin the end of the story, you can read Judges 1 and 2 and see that it didn't end particularly well for the people of Israel. And this, though, is where we find ourselves today as well, don't we? You know, New Testament scholars talk about the fact that for us as Christians, we are those who live between the times. You know, when Jesus' last words on the cross when he died were, it is finished. It's done. God has been faithful to his promises, completely faithful to his promises in Christ, and yet we know that there is a future consummation, don't we? There is still more to come. And between the times between the already and the not yet, you and I are called to be faithful. We are to be in the world, but not of the world. And just like the people of Israel, that is an enormous challenge. Remember the ideal conquest, the, the way I think God would have been really pleased with if it had kind of all worked out this way is for the people of Canaan to confess that they understood that the Lord was God and begin to follow him. Like the example of Rahab, who was incorporated into the people of God. Or the people of Gibeon, who were incorporated into the people of God. The ideal conquest was for the people of Israel to invite those around them to acknowledge that the Lord was God and join them in living faithfully. Join them in being a living, breathing representation of the blessing that comes from living with God. The danger, of course, was that the invitation would not go from Israel to the nations, but it would come from the nations to Israel. And then instead of Israel turning those around them to the Lord, that their hearts would be turned from him. This is still the essence of our struggle, is it not? That through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, the invitation to follow Jesus might flow out from us in our words and in our deeds, that people might be invited to follow Jesus and take that up and be incorporated into the people of God and the blessing of God. 
But there's always the risk that the influence will come the other way, isn't there? Because we're in the world. The values of our world surround us all the time. And so the call to be faithful is not an easy one, but it is an incredibly crucial one. We'll be unpacking this as we look at these concluding chapters in the book of Joshua, looking at the question of what does it mean to be faithful. And so I will leave you with the question, between the times, as we wait for the fullness of God's faithfulness to be revealed to us, are we living faithfully? Are we doing all we can to be faithful representations, living, breathing examples of what it looks like to be in relationship with God through Jesus? It's a big question. It's a big question, but a critical one for us.